What a privilege again, uh, as we do each year together, particularly thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and worshiping him in all of his glory and in all of his greatness in this incredible work. The resurrection is a massive truth, foundational truth on which all of our faith stands. So here are my annual reminders, if you've been here before, either because you're a regular part or you show up each Easter. Here are reminders for us from others. John Stott, Christianity in its very essence is a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. John MacArthur, just as the heart pumps life-giving blood to every part of the body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns, and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Henry Morris, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did take place, then Jesus is God and the Christian faith is absolute truth. John Bloom, the resurrection from the dead is the single greatest hope of the Christian. It is the only prize that ultimately matters and we make it our one great goal to obtain it. It is the culmination of the gospel. Tim Keller, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he says? The issue on which everything stands is not whether you or I like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And then finally, J.I. Packer, without the resurrection, Jesus can be your hero, but he can't be your savior. As we noted on Friday night and as we note each year, 1 Corinthians 15, God inspiring Paul to write this later in what we call the great resurrection chapter because it features so many aspects of that resurrection, reminded us or stressed to us that of the very first importance, the things we must hold fast to, whatever other truths we trust in are wasted if we do not cling to the resurrection of Christ and ultimately our resurrection as a result. So later in that chapter, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, it's useless, it's meaningless, it's a waste, and you are still in your sins, the greatest tragedy of all. Those, he goes on, those who have fallen asleep, who have, believers who have passed away in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Our hope is not just that Jesus makes this life the best life that it can be now, but that one day, even if our, our days are over and death has occurred and we have returned to dust, that he will resurrect us to an unbelievably, infinitely better life, a perfect, never-ending life with him. So of the many things that Jesus pronounced about I am, one of the most significant and perhaps the most significant in some ways was his declaration at the tomb of Lazarus when he said what no other religious leader can truthfully say or demonstrate. And Jesus did both at that tomb. I am the resurrection and the life. And then he explains that in, from two angles. Whoever believes in me, though he physically die, 
yet he shall ultimately live eternally. And everyone who is living and believing in me will never truly ultimately die even when their body passes away. And then he asks that all-important question, do you believe this? Jesus declares, I am the only one who can do an incredible thing like raise someone from the dead after death has occurred and give them an even better life, there are no zombies, and be able to sustain that for all of eternity so that death does not occur ever again. And so Jesus is asking each of us today as well, do you believe this? Not half-heartedly, not passively because I've always believed this, and not going through life really unaffected by it, hardly ever thinking about it. And as a practical application to our body, so pardon us for a family moment, those of you who are visiting, we continue to see and read and hear many, many testimonies, whether it's membership, baptism, or just sitting with people and hearing their stories. And it is quite striking how seldom the resurrection is noted. We're focused on the cross, all the things accomplished through that, which, praise God, are critical, important things. But it's not a denial of the resurrection, but a failure for us to keep it as preeminent and prominent in our stories, in our faith, in our de declaration of what God means to us and what he has done for us. So there's a direct correlation between how, how deeply, how passionately, how fully, how wholeheartedly you believe and glory in Jesus being the, your resurrection in life and the resurrection in life and the power, the impact, the influence that it will have on your life. Because the stronger we feel about things, the more they affect and impact our whole lives. So today, does the truth of the resurrection surge through your veins of faith and run out to every element of it? As MacArthur spoke of that pivot that circulates and waters everything else. Does it power you day by day through your life. As someone said, many will hear news during Easter Sunday worship that Jesus has been raised and will sing hymns praising God. All too many will go home quietly to an Easter dinner and go back to the routines of their lives, largely unaffected by the news. They are neither filled with awe nor compelled to tell anyone about what they know. So this doctrine, so central to our faith, to our relationship with God, to our creeds, to our lives, is too glorious and too important to file into our minds, to pull out once a year and celebrate for an hour or two. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every day, ultimately, is a day that we celebrate that Christ is risen. 
So Paul Tripp, we've not properly understood the resurrection of Jesus Christ if we think that what the resurrection calls us to is moments of religious celebration. Great as they are, the resurrection is not just something you celebrate, it's something you live. Having his followers wholeheartedly and unreservedly believe in his resurrection from the dead is critically important to Jesus. So let's ask him now to help us treasure this gospel news more dearly than we ever have in our lives and to truly be shaped and influenced daily by its reality. Father, we open our prayer this morning praying what you recorded, what you had Peter write for us at the very beginning of his letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to your great mercy, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah. How great you are, how great your works are, and how spectacularly great your resurrection is. We pray as Paul did in Philippians 2, that we may know you, Christ, and so in knowing you, experience the power of your resurrection so that even though we may suffer yet in this life and even though we may ultimately become like you in death, that by it also we will, in your time and in your perfect plan, attain to the resurrection from the dead. I pray that for each person here this morning that you would so work mercifully in their life through their faith and their repentance in you. But charge all of us, Lord, with a deeper sense of the glory, the power of the resurrection, and all that you desire for it to influence our hearts, our minds, our worship, our affections, our gratitude, and our living. May it all lead to a pleasing aroma, glorifying to your name. O risen King. Amen. So each Easter, we pick some aspect of it. Sometimes we're studying through the Gospels, and I try to time it so that we culminate and end with uh, the last chapter of that Gospel. We've done both Luke and Mark this way, culminating in Easter and our study of the resurrection that way. Many times we've done topical things or zeroed in on certain aspects. This year, we're going even more precise and narrow, and actually trying to pick up where we left off on Friday evening. And I recognize that all of you were not here Friday evening. Hopefully you feel a little FOMO about that. And next year we'll be here to celebrate uh, what Christ did on the cross. But Friday night, we focused particularly on what Isaiah first prophesied about the wounds of Christ and their healing power and then Peter picked up on in his letter and reemphasized as well that the incalculable wounding of Jesus' physical body for our sin as he bore it all, wound after wound after wound, until his body did not resemble a human being's body, is the means by which he now heals us 
in our salvation and in our ongoing sanctification. The wounds of Jesus are precious in their healing power. Today, we see those same wounds three days later where we perhaps don't expect them to be on his resurrected, glorified body. They're not just still healing, and that just takes time, because Jesus could erase those in a millisecond. They're intentional, strategic, purposeful for us. I love the way David Mathis just simply put it. His scars preach good news. Think of it this way. Behind every scar or wound on our bodies, there is a story. This mark here, which some of you stare at when I'm talking to you, (laughs) has a story behind it. You can ask me sometime. We're focused on a far more important story this morning. But there's a story there from when I was five years old. And it continues with me. A scar is a wound that is healed, but not gone away. Life tattoos us in its own ways. But the interesting way in which God has created the human body is superficial wounds heal relatively quickly, and our flesh grows over them, and they are gone. But deeper wounds, the really painful ones, leave scars. They leave their mark for good on us, reminding us often of their story and prompting us often to tell others that story. So we might see here that the very deepest wounds that have ever been inflicted on a human body, Jesus' body, on that cross, bear the most identifiable Profound scars telling the greatest story there is to tell. We humans often view our scars as unattractive. How many of us, if we were designing a glorified body, would put scars on it? We'd erase them, wouldn't we? We'd beautify them. But Jesus' scars are some of the most beautiful, precious, glorious features of him and of his story of glory. Spurgeon, he might have erased from his body everything which could be an indication of what he had suffered and endured before he descended into the tomb. But no, Jesus finds such beauties in his wound that he will not renounce them. As far as I can tell, I don't think our glorified bodies will necessarily have scars. Perhaps they will. But we know that Jesus' body does very intentionally, very purposefully, very permanently. So Friday night, we use Spurgeon's quote, abide hard by the cross and search the mystery of his wounds. Today, I want to say, abide hard by and search the mystery of his wounds in his resurrected body. So Jesus would make many private and many public appearances uh, following his resurrection. We read about a couple of them in Matthew already. Both 
to encourage all of his followers, to show them what I promised you is true, and to provide for us 2,000 years later even sound evidence for all of time that he did in fact rise from the dead. So we have in 1 Corinthians 15 numerous uh, people that Paul records for us that Jesus appeared to. Cephas or Peter. The 12, which actually every other gospel calls the 11 because of Judah's suicide. 500 brothers, Paul tells us at one time. Jesus' brother, James, perhaps leading to his own salvation. The apostles. And then last of all, Paul says, when he was known as Saul, Christ appeared to him. Matthew tells us only about Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and then for the Great Commission to the Eleven when he met them in Galilee. Mark tells us that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, to two disciples in the country, and to the Eleven at a meal, where he rebuked them for their hard hearts for not believing the other eyewitnesses. Luke tells us that Jesus appeared to two disciples on a road to the village of Emmaus, one of our longer accounts of what was dialogued and talked about, and then an appearance to the eleven. And then finally, John, in his last two chapters, where all the others devote one chapter, he devotes two, showing Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene, to the eleven without Thomas present, for whatever reason, then to all 11, eight days later, when Thomas was present, particularly for his sake, and then to seven disciples on the Sea of Galilee, where John takes almost a chapter to, talk, to capture for us the dialogue between Jesus and Peter. Both Luke and John tell us that Jesus showed his wounds as the best way, the best evidence to verify that the man standing before them at that very moment was the exact same one who had died so violently three days earlier. There was no sleigh of hands, no tricks, no schemes worked up. Jesus proved he was Jesus. If you want, you can turn to John chapter 20. I want to look a little more closely, particularly at this showing of his hands and his side and We'll pick up the account in verse 19, not reading everything, but noting some distinctive things. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, obviously his wounds. Then the disciples were glad, John kind of understates that, when they saw the Lord. We'll go down to verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And they must have told him about the wounds. Because he says to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. A sentiment that many in this world and many since that day have felt 
perhaps even someone today here. So eight days later, verse 26 tells us his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said, I hear in in his voice, compassion, I think. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. And then these important words, do not disbelieve but believe. And Thomas' beautiful answer, my Lord and my God. It's the wounds that convince Thomas, whether seeing them or actually touching them. And though Jesus' body was very different in many ways in his resurrected state, these one-of-a-kind wounds remained. David Mathis again notes, his wounds are two things invitations to sinners and assurances to his saints assurances that it was really him alive again assurances that he really did pay fully and that God had raised him satisfied with that payment assurances that he could fulfill the hardest promise to fulfill going all the way back to John 2 If you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. Assurance that we come to a Savior whose wounds are far worse than any we will ever incur, no matter how deeply wounded we are. Knowing exactly and even more than we do what we are going through, what we are feeling, understanding, and offering his wounds for healing. Tim Keller captures this sentiment a bit. Thank you, Lord, for the confidence your resurrection gives me that in all the that in the end all wrongs will be made right. Thank you for allowing me to rest. Love both of those. Confidence and rest in the assurance of my future resurrection and of living with you forever. Knowing this really fully, confidently believing that heals all wounds. So here, Jesus, to you today, just as he said to Thomas, do not disbelieve, do not doubt, do not be uncertain, do not lack a confidence, but believe. For in believing, there is incredible power in Christ and his resurrection. Mathis quotes also notes that his wounds are invitations to sinners. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead because of the difficulty of believing that, it's certainly not only what we must believe about Jesus, but it's certainly a critical, critical part that many are drawn away from him for because they simply can't believe that. But believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. It's an invitation to sinners to bring their sins to him and to ask in faith for Christ to mercifully forgive you and heal you. It's an invitation to come to him in faith and repentance and find incredible healing. It's an invitation to come to God the Father through the only means possible, which is faith in his Son, the way, the truth, and the life. It's an invitation as Peter's 
opening praise of his letter says. It's an invitation to be born again into a living hope in a world that is without hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So let me emphasize again that having his followers wholeheartedly and unreservedly believe in his rising from the dead is critically important to Christ. John 11, 25 and 26, again, in that declaration, do you believe that Jesus is fully the resurrection and the life? And then in John 20 that we've already noticed from Tom's, or Thomas's story, do not disbelieve but believe. And then Jesus asks him the question, have you believed because you have seen me? And then he makes this declaration, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And John's letter then goes on to finish out that chapter. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these, especially the details about Jesus' death and resurrection that the Gospels culminate with, is that Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you have, may have life in his name. It isn't that any human needs any more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible has provided sufficient it's merely a question of whether we will believe these eyewitness accounts preserved for us. If it's fake news, we are all wasting our time. We shouldn't even be here this morning. But if it's true, if it's true, we should be all in. It should impact and influence and shape all of our lives. So let's culminate now in these closing minutes our focus on the resurrected Jesus, but looking even further into the future about his wounds than what we saw. What's intriguing is that the wounds of Jesus weren't kept only for those 40 days or only for the times that he still would appear here on earth to prove his resurrection. By God's grace, we are shown in Revelation, and you might want to turn there, chapter 5, in some of these little scenes, and again, it's the Apostle John. So John records for us the Thomas conversation and scene, and John records for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the vision that he was given into heaven. In Revelation chapter 5, and 4 and 5 have been unfolding this glorious worship around the throne. But particularly in verse 6, there is an important detail that he describes again between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing over and over and over and over and over. The book of Revelation calls Jesus Christ the lamb. But he notes distinctly here as he's standing as though it had been slain. In ways we can't truly picture, but our minds must not leave out that we will not only see King Jesus as the lion of Judah, but we will see him as a lamb, and then specifically slain. A very visible look of a violent death. Though there is no death in heaven, the look of one death will be there forever. His body, so ordinary when he lived, so mutilated when he died, 
will be spectacularly glorious and distinct in its wounds in glory in heaven. And what makes it spectacularly distinct are these wounds of his slain for our sin. We will recognize him too like Thomas by his wounds. And it will draw us not to look away from him, but to draw us toward him, to gaze in wonder at a lamb who would be slain for our sin like that, and to buckle us in awe-filled worship. The third verse of Matthew Bridges' song that we often sing, crown him with many crowns, urges us, crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands inside, rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. Spurgeon, the wounds of Christ in heaven will be a theme of eternal wonder. They are his glories. And back to Revelation 5. Two more times we see this slain. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For, because we visibly see it, O Lamb, you were slain. And it will be a magnificent thing. By your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You can almost see us, everybody looking around at all of it, stunned by it. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. John goes on, Then I looked, and I looked around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of, myriads of thousands, and saying with a loud voice, and congregation of First Street, we say this on many a Sunday. Let's say it again now. It's practice for eternity. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and might and honor and glory and blessing. Spurgeon, he has redeemed for himself a host that no man can number, who are all the trophies of his victories. But these scars, they are memorials of the fight. Lest we ever forget what it costs God to redeem us. Mathis, in closing, we will worship him forever with the beauty of his scars in view. They are no defect to eyes of the redeemed, but a glory for saved sinners beyond compare. We have said, abide hard by the cross and search the mysteries of those profound wounds. I say to you again today, abide hard by and search the mystery of his wounds in his resurrected body and abide hard and even more search the mystery of his wounds in heaven forever. We have a God who has wounds, wounds for us to bring us to himself. Life-giving wounds, healing wounds, beautiful wounds, eternal wounds. And I'm only conjecturing here, but perhaps each of us will hear him say, put your finger here. Reach out your hand. Touch my side. And we will fall and declare, hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah. What a slain lamb. Father, we're so grateful 
so grateful this Resurrection Sunday for what Christ paid, for what you paid through your Son to give us life in him. We praise you for that, and we ask, Lord, that you will impress more deeply on our hearts the profound significance of that now every day of our lives here and for all of eternity. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, and we now lift up one final song together before we depart to go out and live the resurrected life. Please receive us this from us for your honor's sake. Amen.